0: This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. This is Trumpet Hour on KPCG. I'm Philip Nice. President Donald Trump has officially been charged as a criminal. We are learning more about our criminal and legal system and the rule of law in America. Are we learning it too late? America shares much of its approach to its law, its ideals, its culture, with Britain, Canada, and related nations. But what is it that makes these nations so closely related? And why are these modern nations related at all to a certain ancient people and their ancient faith from their ancient book? And why has that ancient book been such an enduring influence on America and Britain? Why not another book? Why not other nations? Is it more than a religious book? One fairly new institution is researching that exact question. Meet the Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology. The law is in the news this week, and we are getting more and more acquainted with how the United States justice system works, is supposed to work, does not work. The law is in the news because President Donald Trump is officially under arrest. Now, there are enormous consequences to what is happening today to Mr. Trump in New York City. This is all over the news, of course. They've covered his every move. Literally, his move from his home in uh, Mar-a-Lago to Palm Beach International Airport on Monday, his boarding of the plane, the actual progress of his flight from Florida to New York, his exit from the plane at LaGuardia Airport, his drive to Trump Tower in Manhattan, his drive to the Manhattan Criminal Courthouse, the return of his private jet to Florida, every single move. So incidentally, when you see coverage like this, always check to see Uh, What is getting buried by it? Uh, There's a lot of news happening, a lot of important news that uh, is getting buried by the coverage of every single detail of this trial. But the most drastic thing you have heard about the prosecution of Donald Trump, the most drastic thing you've heard about how important this is, is an underestimation. The most drastic thing you've heard about this underestimates how important it really is. And if you want to understand how important this is, check out the Trumpet Daily here on KPCG. If you like Trumpet Hour, the Philadelphia Trumpet, Trumpet.com, and yet somehow haven't seen the Trumpet Daily with host Stephen Flurry yet, he will give you updates every weekday, and he and the Trumpet Daily team are monitoring what is happening to President Trump very closely. So you will get all the details and the importance of this situation there again every weekday. But the drastic importance of this particular case and its outcome has brought a lot of attention to the legal process. How do Americans try to seek and render justice in this case and in in cases in general? Uh, It reminds me a little bit, bear with me, of the, the elections And I I love watching the elections, or I love the coverage of of elections because I love hearing all the different counties and cities and places named off one after another. Here's what, you know, this district in Nevada, uh, how they voted. Here's what, what the, who's leading in, you know, Broward County or Mesa or a district in Vermont or, or what have you. It's a really, amazing, uh, flyover of the, of the country, all these different, very distinct, very different places. Uh, so everybody gets to be a lot more interested in, uh, you know, Maricopa County, Arizona, uh, when there's so much on the line, but with everything that's on the line in this particular criminal case, people are looking into, okay, what is an investigation or a grand jury? And so we've seen that in this process, they, uh, New York has the New York district attorney has been investigating President Trump. A grand jury was impaneled. Uh, That's a a group of uh, peers. So the prosecutors in charge of New York, the district attorney's office, uh, investigated President Trump when they wanted to press forward further toward a trial. They impaneled a grand jury, which is similar to a, a regular jury. In some ways, it's uh, meant to be a, a jury of one's peers. Uh, but they hear the evidence from the prosecution and decide whether to indict. And that is to formally charge the uh, accused with, with the crime. And so we had the indictment. I believe that was on Thursday, March 30th. And then we had just this week the arrest, the arrest of President Donald Trump, who obviously turned himself uh, in and appeared and was not handcuffed or, or jailed in a cell or a mugshot taken as far as we've, we've seen so far. Uh, but he was uh, considered under arrest and he was arraigned. And so the arraignment is the, is the appearance, the first appearance in court, where the judge informs the defendant of what he's being charged with, what that indictment included, and asks him, does he plead guilty or not guilty? And so President Trump entered his plea, not guilty, and now we're headed toward a trial and that, will, that has not commenced and will not commence likely for, for some time, some months, uh, but in that, the the government, the prosecution will be seeking to convict President Trump of what they have officially charged him with and sentence him to a uh now obviously there's much more involved in this particular case. There are political goals. There are there are goals that actually exceed even just politics. And this this prosecution of a president, Uh, is unprecedented. It involves untested legal theories, and it is a clear attempt to use any means possible to stop Donald Trump. If you can take Donald Trump's personality and his importance out of the equation for a second, you can realize that there's something very significant happening here uh, that doesn't have to do with Republicans and Democrats or President Donald Trump, it has to do with what has happened to the American justice system. It is possible to be a large, powerful, modern country and have a joke for a justice system. The very modern and very powerful and very large country of China has a conviction rate in its court system of 99%. This is why you saw those massive protests in Hong Kong. It had to do with the law. It had to do with the, the justice system and China extending its justice system into Hong Kong. They did not want to be a part of a justice system where 99% of the accused are convicted. Because when you have a justice system where 99% of the accused are convicted, you do not have a justice system. You have a tool of the government for controlling people that is called a justice system. It's a little bit surprising that China even bothers with courtrooms and judges and so forth if they're going to have a 99% conviction rate. Clearly, 99% of the accused in China are not guilty, but they are declared guilty. So the point is, you can have, in the modern world, a justice system that is that in unjust The point is, in the modern world, you can have a justice system that is that unjust. It's happening right now. There are court dates in China right now where the people are getting convicted. There are court dates right now in China where certainly there are a large number of people in China whose court date is today who are definitely getting convicted, no matter the facts of their case. And so the point is that You can begin with a justice system that presumes innocence, that uh, attempts, and as far as a human government can, to render justice. You can try to build a justice system that is a government of laws and not men, as John Adams put it, and you can lose it. It can become a government of men people who use the laws as they see fit, who bend the laws as they see fit, who convict 99% of people they don't like and fail to prosecute even guilty people that they do like. So watch what is happening to your justice system in America and realize what it was we had. It was a human justice system. It was... Full of flaws, wrongful convictions, wrongful acquittals uh, throughout our generations, throughout our history. But what if it turns into something close to a 99% conviction rate justice system? We have unmoored from our previous justice system and we are heading in the direction of a justice system that is simply a weapon for the government. That can happen, that is happening. Uh, That's been the case throughout most of human history, and we are losing the system of justice that we had. Imperfect and flawed as it was, you are entering a darker time. And what we're seeing here is a disassembling of the blessings we didn't even know we had. I believe it was Abraham Lincoln who asked, what are we as a nation? What is America? Is it the, the territory or is it the population? And he pointed out that the population changes, generations come and go, uh, the population increases, the borders increase, they were increasing and changing while he was uh, in his political career. So he asked, what is America as a nation? And he said, it's a nation of laws. America is a nation of laws. It is a, a nation of this particular understanding of what a human being is. These are my words. In, in being a, a nation of laws, America is a nation of this understanding of what a human being is, how he should be governed, how he should be treated, how he should interact with others. That's what laws are. He understood the importance of of a government of laws and not of men. And if he, if John Adams looked at our justice system now, today, this week, first week of April, 2023, they would see a government of men and not laws. So please do watch the, the case against President Trump closely, not just for the personality of President Trump, which is very important, as I said, but also for what is happening to the system of justice underneath. let's focus on a concept that is really important for our listeners to know. It's important for understanding so much of what you hear on Trumpet Hour and the Trumpet Daily as well, and what you read in the Philadelphia Trumpet. It's about who America is and where America comes from. So to discuss that, we have trumpet contributor Abraham Blondeau calling in from Canada. We're talking about America from Canada, and you'll see why shortly. Mr. Blondeau, good to have you with us.
1: Yeah. Hi, Phil. Uh, it's good to be on the show.
0: Several years ago, I saw a tailor shop here in the Oklahoma City metro, and I was intrigued by its name. Most tailors seem to be named after their proprietor, the man's last name, or maybe something like Prestige. I don't, I don't know, but this one was named, is named Covenant Brothers. Covenant Brothers. So I visited one time, and the emblem of this establishment is a crest blazoned with a shield. And in the shield are two charges, an American flag next to a Canadian flag. So Covenant Brothers, symbolized by an American flag next to a Canadian flag. And I asked about the name in this particular kind of heraldry, and the proprietor told me that America and Canada— are Covenant Brothers. So, Mr. Blondo, are our two nations, America and Canada, related? And if so, how?
1: Yeah, that's a, a very interesting question. It's a very interesting thing to think about. And actually, I have two personal examples that can really uh, flush this out. Um, and I have a unique perspective because I'm married to an American. So you have the, the meeting of the two nations in one. <laughs> um, and uh, my wife and I, we had our, our ancestry done, those DNA tests you can get done. And my wife, she, she's from Pennsylvania, but she grew up in Oklahoma. So we were interested to see uh, what would come out with. And, and lo and behold, once we, we got the results, she had more British heritage in her than I did, <laughs> even though she's from the United States, the land of the, the free and the brave. So that was interesting. But also there's a, another experience that help will help uh, bridge the gap here between those two points. And that is a couple years ago, we went on a uh, sightseeing tour in Niagara. There's a battlefield there from the War of 1812. Uh, it was the Battle of Lundy's Lane. But basically the Americans were pushing up and the British were trying to stop them. Um, both sides had uh, volunteers and militia from the United States and, and from uh, Upper Canada. But the, the interesting thing about the battle is that on each side, you had families fighting each other. So you had in the American militia and in the militia from Canada, they were related to each other. You can look at the the lists of the wounded, the injured, those who died on both sides. And there's a, a common relationship between the two. And our, our tour guide, who did an excellent job, he... I. Uh, His name was Rob. I recommend him if you if you ever go to Niagara region for a tour. He related how during the American Revolution, the loyalists to the crown moved up into Canada, especially from Pennsylvania. A lot just moved across uh, into uh, Ontario. And so you had a family relationship. In fact, it got awkward because both sides of the family would go back to Britain to visit their grandparents but they're in the middle of a war, and so you have <laughs> you have two sides on each side of the dinner table at war with each other, even though they have a common ancestor in britain but that's that's how we can trace it back is that we have these two nations, modern nations today, but they're related through the common heritage going back to great britain
0: So that means that other nations that came from Britain would also have this strong connection
1: yeah, absolutely um and you can see that around the world through the British Commonwealth and what was the British Empire. Canada is one of those that's connected to Britain, but you can go to Australia, New Zealand, you can go to South Africa. So many islands around the world uh, have, they might, they're independent now, but they have communities of British uh, ancestry uh, embedded in those nations. And in fact, right now there are 54 Commonwealth nations and all of them, they all have ties to Great Britain. Some are through ancestry, some are through ins- or institutional connections, but that's a pretty incredible chunk of the world that can all have some kind of link back to Great Britain.
0: That is a large number of nations. I did not realize it was that many. I do recall looking at a, a flag atlas or some sort of book with just the list of the nation's flags uh, or sorry of the world's flags and if you get a chance to to look at something like that I really recommend you do because there is one thing that stands out when you look at all the flags in the world and I don't think anything else stands out as a common thread except for this one thing and that is the Union Jack you see the flag of Britain Emblazoned in the in the flags of other nations, as you say, some of them uh, voluntarily voluntarily choosing to maintain a commonwealth connection, uh, although they might have not uh, literally descended from Britain. Many of them did, and you can see that you can literally see that in their flags. There's nothing else quite quite like that. So once you know to look for it, you can see that these nations still share a a strong connection. And uh, I, we, we see this in the news. I was thinking about recent news events, and that's why I, I thought to have you on, Mr. Blondo. One of them was the flight of the Chinese spy balloon. Uh, if you noticed, one of the details in all of that was in charge of detection of threats like that is something called NORAD, the North American Aerospace Defense Command. And one of the things I noticed in all that news coverage was that it is a bi-national Canada-U.S. command. So th- we are... We are literally taking our, our safety in our own hands, not just as as the United States, but in partnership, in, in brotherhood, if you will, with Canada. You'll also, not in the news not too long ago was the Five Eyes Alliance. We don't hear too much of that about that. That's probably by design. The Five Eyes are five countries that are part of the UK-USA agreement, and they share signals intelligence. So they intercept communications and share what they find. And that involves the United States, the United Kingdom, Britain, Australia, Canada, and New Zealand. Again, these five nations, all of which you just mentioned. And in the news right now is the AUKUS Alliance. And this is an alliance for advancing military technologies, artificial intelligence, quantum technologies, electronic warfare, cyber attacks, very modern stuff. And it goes back to Australia, the United Kingdom and the United States. So you can see this in in current news headlines, major news headlines. This AUKUS alliance is a major development uh, in the Pacific. So Mr. Blondeau, you've studied history. Uh, you like to write about it for the Philadelphia Trumpet. In addition to these recent headlines, where else do you see these relationships between these covenant brothers, if you will, in history?
1: Yeah, this is a really fascinating uh, study once you get into it, because there are so many examples. Um, of this tie between the two sides of the world, between the the British Commonwealth and and the United States, I think a lot of everything you mentioned. There are these huge uh, projects together. A lot of them are between government or in economy and commerce. A lot of these have their origin back in around World War II, when Britain was before even the United States entered the war. United States really helped uh, the UK in an unprecedented way in. Uh, the lend-lease program, and, and just supplying Britain with a lot of uh, economic support. Uh, but a lot of it started with the Atlantic Charter in World War II, and you had this profound um, intelligence network where uh, the two nations integrated their intelligence, and that really sparked this this massive sprawling of like the Five Eyes, which is a continuation of that, and all these other economic these these huge programs. That have been going on uh, through the Cold War, uh, the United Nations, NATO. Those are other examples where, out of this World War II uh, alliance, you have these massive worldwide, or and European um, alliances uh, come out from that. But it, it goes a lot deeper than that too. One of the uh, a unique thing a lot of historians question is why. Did, didn't the United States ever really go to war with Britain in a, in a massive way? You had the War of 1812. That was a very, very small-scale conflict. And uh, historians call this the Thucydides Trap. Uh, a rising power will eventually fight with the status quo power as a uh, power goes up and down in the world. Most cases, they go to war with each other. But one of the exceptions was the United States and Britain. When the United States became the superpower and surpassed the british empire uh, that stopped and that goes back to this familial ancestral relationship Um, there are always these differences between the two nations but the thinking was the same it's not just an institutional alliance the thinking was the same between them and that's why you have the same pattern of law and order democracy this uh liberal liberal uh humanitarian approach to helping nations in the world that is very, very unique to the British and American uh, use of their their power. You can study any other empire, and it's very rare where you find examples of that. Uh, but you can trace it all the way back to uh, they came from the same place in Britain, and they have the same thinking.
0: You begin to see why these nations are acting like brothers, side by side, in in World War in the institutions that came out of that, as you said. I remember as a kid, one uh, finding it interesting that we did go to war against Britain for our independence. And very quickly thereafter, we were friends again. (laughs) We were, you know, because we were so much the same, we shared so much with Britain. And even as a child, I thought that was curious uh, why that was was the case. Now there's something else intriguing about these these covenant brothers, these brother nations. If you look at the news, and I'm talking from excuse me, from presidential campaigns to United Nations Security Council resolutions, to all kinds of other political, cultural, religious connections, these nations, especially the United States, have a strong connection to a Hebrew speaking nation, the state of Israel. Can you tell us why that is?
1: So that's, that's the next step in this journey we've been taking And going back into history, is you have these two nations, it makes sense, they all come from Great Britain, but why does Great Britain have a connection with this little state in the middle of, of the Middle East? Why do they both have lines as part of their, the symbols of their government? Why do they both have these historical ties? Why did Britain go in and help uh, establish a state of Israel? And that all traces back to the common origin point, because not only are America and Britain related, so are the Jewish people in the Middle East. They're all, they, they all, too, have a common ancestor. And that's where this gets interesting. And you can even see in secular history, going back to the, the founding of the State of Israel, um, that a lot of the British and American leaders believed that there was some kind of heritage link between them. They, they could see that, and you could even see that in the thinking once again, why Israel is the only Western, modern, democratic, true democracy in the Middle East that has these sort of traditions. And so we, this is where we start moving beyond secular history, and we move into the biblical history, where we I think everyone thinks of the Jewish people as an ancient people going into the pages of the Bible, and that's true. But then that also connects Britain and America to the pages of the Bible, because they all have a common ancestor. And once you get into these prophecies, and you compare it to this history we've been talking about, it becomes very, very plain what's what's happening.
0: I remember something else that I saw when I was younger on television, and it was Palestinians protesting, uh, and they were burning flags. It was a banner that had three flags, and it was the flag of Israel, which... Is to be expected, next to the flag of the United States, next to the flag of the United Kingdom, Britain, and I thought, wow, they recognize they recognize a brotherhood between these three nations. Where does this all trace back to ultimately?
1: So, if we if we want to get back to the the origin point here, the uh, start, you would have to turn in your Bible to Genesis twelve and that's where God called a man named Abram out of a nation in in Mesopotamia, and he told him to go to the promised land, or the the nation that we call Israel today. And in Genesis 12, you can read in the first three verses, God calls Abram out, and he makes this promise. It has two parts to it. But this promise says he will make a great nation. Out of Abram's descendants, he will bless them and make his name great. But where it really connects with the history we've been talking about is in genesis forty eight and forty nine. You can read in there how um the birthright, which is the the chief blessing of of the family, who who gets the birthright, who gets the prime blessings from the father's inheritance? Israel is an old man. He says, Manasseh shall become a a, a great people, but his younger brother shall become a greater people they shall become a, a multitude of nations or a commonwealth of nations so where in history do we see this fulfilled well that's exactly what we've been talking about you have these these ancestors these brothers have a single common ancestry one's a superpower and one's this commonwealth of nations this is the how really ultimately how the, all these nations are related together comes from abraham and then down his family trees and then it's not just these sons all the sons became a nation but specifically ephraim manasseh ephraim is britain and and the british peoples manasseh is the united states
0: so the united states the united kingdom the british commonwealth canada australia new zealand and the nation of israel There is a connection here. You can see it in the cultures. You can see it in the news. You can see it in history. And Mr. Blondeau, you are showing us that you can see it in the Bible. If you want to see for yourself whether the brotherhood between these nations really does go back to the Bible, go to thetrumpet.com slash literature and order the United States and Britain in Prophecy, the United States and Britain in Prophecy, and see if those promises were just a religious reward from a long time ago. Or whether they span 4,000 years all the way up to what is happening right now in the United States and Britain. Well, my brother from Canada, Mr. Blondeau, appreciate you joining us.
1: Yeah, thank you, Mr. Knight, for having me on the show.
0: And we'll look forward to talking to you again. This is KPCG, and this is Trumpet Hour. Here on Trumpet Hour, we follow the Middle East region especially closely, particularly current events and future events involving Israel and Jerusalem. A lot of people overlook this region, but trust me, watch Jerusalem. But what's even more fascinating than what is going on right now in this part of the world is its absolutely incredible past. One fairly new organization is delving very deeply indeed into Israel's very ancient and very active past If you're not already following this institute, you definitely should. It's all about the history and the stones of ancient Jerusalem. From the institute's offices in Jerusalem, here's Christopher Eames to introduce you to the Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology.
2: Thanks, Phil, and hello, everyone. My name is Christopher Eames, and I'm an employee here at the Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology. Our institute is based here in Jerusalem, Israel, in the beautiful Talbia neighborhood, nearly a stone's throw away from the official residences of the Prime Minister of Israel and the President of Israel, so right in the heart of Jerusalem here. Now, if you've been to our website, armstronginstitute.org, there's a good chance you would have seen our mission statement plastered across the homepage, and that is sharing Israel's biblical archaeology with the largest audience possible. What we seek to do is highlight all the latest research in biblical archaeology, as well as former discoveries, and to particularly bring out the biblical connections to these amazing discoveries being made nearly on a daily basis now. One of the big problems with modern scholarship is a sort of a reticence to use and refer to the biblical account. And as such, for the layperson, if you will, there is a huge missed opportunity here to highlight meaningful discoveries to so many people around the world. Also, there's the issue that many such discoveries and uh, and such research is hidden behind expensive paywalls and buried deep within dry, tedious academic papers. That, That all, of course, has its place. But we really want to make this kind of research more available to the everyday individual who just doesn't have the time or, frankly, the interest to spend hours trawling through tedious, expensive And restrictive research that in the end oftentimes does not make some of the amazing biblical connections to discoveries that they ought to. There's a lot of discoveries out there that even certain more biblical archaeology-oriented outlets just don't do sufficient justice to. And that's without even getting into the, the thinly veiled contempt in academia for the biblical account. So we're attempting to change that and to make these kinds of discoveries accessible, interesting, and dynamic to our readers, to bring biblical history to life, as the past 150-some years of archaeological excavation has been doing. Because actually, despite a contrary belief that some of our listeners might have gotten from Bible minimalist scholars, archaeology, especially over the past couple of decades, has actually been thoroughly upending many bible critical or bible minimalist theories and corroborating the biblical account to the point that some of the most famous critics like for example professor israel finkelstein are starting to hint at a change taking place in the scholarship in our understanding of the historicity of the biblical account so these are all things that we highlight on our website And further, we also sponsor, participate in, and help direct excavations in what we unabashedly believe to be the most important archaeological site on Earth, Jerusalem. So more on that, though, in a bit here. So, of course, we have our website, which is the primary platform in which we we publish our articles on amstronginstitute.org. We also have a beautiful, full-color, 40-page bi-monthly magazine that is absolutely free of charge called Let the Stones Speak. Now if you'd like to sign up for that, just visit our website and you can do that there. There's absolutely, again, no cost or obligation, so you've got nothing to lose. Do go ahead, join other subscribers from what I think is around 70 different countries around the world. From some of the tiny islands in the Pacific to countries right across the continent of Africa, throughout Europe, the Middle East, Asia, and the Americas, we also have regular email updates that you can subscribe to, updates about all the newest articles coming out, etc. So you can sign up for those on our website again, or contact us at letters at armstronginstitute.org. Again, that's letters at armstronginstitute.org. We also have a podcast, which you can follow on YouTube, of the same name as our magazine entitled Let the Stones Speak.
0: Thanks again for joining us on Trumpet Hour. If you're just joining us, we are hearing from Jerusalem, Israel, and an introduction from Christopher Eames, to the Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology. Mr. Eames is a staff member there, and he's been telling us about armstronginstitute.org. Armstronginstitute.org. Here's more about the Armstrong Institute and its background from Christopher Eames.
2: Now, we actually have quite a storied history here in Jerusalem, going back to our namesake, the theologian, philanthropist, and educator Herbert W. Armstrong. Mr. Armstrong had a close relationship with many of Israel's prime ministers and presidents. And in the late 1960s, after the capture of Jerusalem during the Six-Day War, the way opened up to actually excavate this ancient capital of the nation. And what ensued was what was known colloquially as the Big Dig at the foot of the Temple Mount, the largest excavation in Israel's history. And this decade-long excavation from the 60s through to the 70s was conducted in 50-50 partnership between Mr. Armstrong's Ambassador College and the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, led by the famous biblical archaeologist, Professor Benjamin Mazar. And following that 10-year excavation, further excavations were conducted on Jerusalem's Ophel and the City of David. Now we've kept that lamp burning, so to speak, after Mr. Armstrong died in the 1980s and Professor Benjamin Mazar himself also dying in the 1990s. But his granddaughter, Elat Mazar, who actually participated in the Big Dig as a young girl, she herself became a qualified archaeologist and took up the mantle of her grandfather. So in 2005, we continued that connection with her And it was that year that she began her her famous excavation of King David's Palace in the City of David. Uh, We sent students there for that excavation from the college, now named Herbert W. Armstrong College, in honor of Mr. Armstrong. We sent a series of students on those excavations that continued through the 2000s. And we've had regular excavations with her since, up until Dr. Mazar's untimely death in 2021. Now, we've made many incredible discoveries with her and have been honored, really, to be a part of her journey of discovery, as arguably Israel's foremost biblical archaeologist, with discoveries that she made, including that of King David's palace, Nehemiah's wall, Solomon's wall and gatehouse the royal seal stamps of the Biblical princes Gedaliah and Jehucal, as well as the royal seal stamps of King Hezekiah and Isaiah. And all of these things and many more incredible discoveries besides, you can read about on our website. There's the Tower of Uzziah, for example, the the gold menorah medallion hoard uh, that we discovered in 2013. There's the Great Revolt coin hoard discovered in 2018 is a magnificent second temple period new testament period structure numerous small finds hundreds of coins hundreds of biblical period seal stamps arrows from the babylonian destruction of jerusalem absolutely amazing bible related finds and even what we don't find is amazing from a biblical perspective Again, we've had a massive horde of arrowheads from the Babylonian siege against Jerusalem in 586 BC. But you know what we don't find? Arrowheads from Sennacherib's encampment against Jerusalem during the 8th century BC, the the reign of Hezekiah. We do have this stratum in Jerusalem, and we do... Know that Sennacherib encamped around Jerusalem. His own inscriptions tell us that, as well as the Bible. But what was the message that the prophet Isaiah brought Hezekiah from God to reassure him? 2 Kings 9, verse 32 says, quote, Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into the city, nor shoot an arrow there. And indeed, what are we missing in our excavations? Assyrian arrows, and archaeologists putting the Bible to one side, they're still scratching their heads about why Sennacherib did not conquer Jerusalem along with the numerous other cities that the Bible describes that he did conquer in the nation of Judah. But I digress a little bit with that. Uh, so so we have continued excavating with Dr. Mazar up until our final excavation with her in 2018. And since then, we have continued our partnership with Hebrew University's archaeology department, excavating with Professor Uzi Liebner, who is actually the head of their archaeology department. We we had a summer excavation with him last year that brought some amazing results from the Second Temple period, and particularly the final moments of the great revolt of 70 AD and we're preparing for a two-part excavation with him this summer coming. We're also in the planning stages of excavating with Hebrew University's Professor Yossi Garfinkel, who in many ways is taking up the mantle of Dr. Elat Mazar as a specialist in the subject of King David and 10th century Israel's United Monarchy. Professor Liebner is, is more of a classical period, Second Temple period, or New Testament period onwards, whatever you'd like to call it. Whereas uh, Professor Garfinkel specializes in the Bronze Age and Iron Age, or in other words, the Old Testament period, particularly the period of the Israelite monarchy. So we're hopefully going to continue excavating where Dr. Mazar left off on the lower part of Jerusalem's Ophel, just south of the Temple Mount on the southeast side there with him this year, all going to plan... And our Armstrong College students come down, of course, to take part in those excavations. But besides excavating, writing, our podcasts and our own publishing efforts, we've got several other activities and projects that we do at the Institute that our listeners might be interested to hear about. We actually have the personal libraries of the late Professor Benjamin Mazar and Dr. Eilat Mazar at our institute, along with additional books donated to us that had been stored at the Hebrew University's campus. So all of these books, all told total nearly, I think, 10,000 uh, books. So we're in the process of setting all that up properly, putting each and every book into a computer system and making everything properly available to use so that people can come and, and visit the library and utilize some of these very important and in many cases rare and difficult to find books. We're also regularly working with Dr. Mazar's sister, Avital Mazar, at the Hebrew University. She has picked up where her sister, Elat Mazar, left off in directing the publication of several unfinished volumes started by Dr. Mazar. So we're closely working with her to finish those publications and reports of prior excavations. Uh, Another project we're beginning is the renovation uh, somewhat of the archaeology site at Jerusalem's Ophel, setting up some new signage across the southeastern part of the site, etc. Some of the existing signage has suffered a bit due to weather conditions, and of course there are the multiple new discoveries from our excavations that need signage for tourists to be able to reference. And another thing we're hoping to start doing in future is also holding occasional conferences about biblical archaeology here at the Institute. We're also in the early planning stages for a major exhibit at our Armstrong College campus in Edmond, Oklahoma, and we're also looking at getting a smaller exhibit going in a sense, putting some artifacts on display here at the Armstrong Institute in Jerusalem. We've already held two such major archaeology exhibits in America that have drawn many thousands of visitors, one on the time period of the prophet Jeremiah and the other on King Hezekiah's time period. And these have, of course, since ended, but you can still visit our exhibits online on our website. Besides all that, we've also got tours that we offer of our excavation sites on Jerusalem's Ophel and the City of David. And again, you can find out more about those on our website too, armstronginstitute.org, if you're ever in the area. So, no shortage of activity. And hopefully, in this brief uh, discussion, I haven't left out too much, but that's a very brief rundown. But again, do visit our website, armstronginstitute.org, Add your name to our email list. Check out our YouTube podcast, Let the Stones Speak, and become a subscriber to that, and also our free magazine, Let the Stones Speak, of the same name. Our latest issue is just hitting mailboxes right now, I believe. It's this time of year that the topic of Israel and Egypt and the Exodus is often discussed, so the theme of the magazine is on that topic, and I know that's one of the big interests for people in Biblical Archaeology. So if you're late in signing up for the magazine, you can still go online and browse through our back issues. You can download or print out the PDFs, and each article also gets published separately on our website. So it's still all completely accessible. And feel free to scroll through or or search through some of our existing material. I'm not sure exactly, but I think we've got something like 600 plus articles on the website covering a broad range of subjects on archaeology in the Hebrew Bible. And I do want to thank all of our supporters out there, our devoted readers, and for the kind comments and questions that we get from you. If you do have any questions or comments, do feel free to email them to us at letters at Institute.org.
0: That was Christopher Eames, a staff member of the Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology in Jerusalem. You will definitely want to check out armstronginstitute.org. If you want to read the latest, subscribe to the email updates or listen to the podcast that Mr. Eames mentioned there. I saw that the Ten Commandments movie has been trending on social media this week. People have been posting clips from it and saying they used to watch it every year. But maybe you want something much more interesting and much more real. Evidence of the Ten Plagues, the gods of Egypt, possible rock art from the Exodus, what the Egyptian records say, which pharaoh was it after all? What can we tell from the scientific evidence and from the histories? Does it match up with the Bible or not? Did all of this really happen? Well, Mr. Eames and the staff there at the Armstrong Institute do a good job of laying it out clearly with maps. It's it's visually interesting. It's engaging. It's easy to read and understand, but it is very fulsome uh, in its research and and its academic rigor, and it's just an appealing way to engross yourself in some very important, very intriguing, very interesting history. Uh, The website, he said, was armstronginstitute.org. It's time for today's Last Word. Well, today we've talked about the implementation of the law in America. We've talked about the deep connections between America, Britain, and Israel, which include our approach to law. And law is not just for lawyers. I mean, how people approach law comes from their deepest beliefs about what human beings are and where human beings come from and what human beings' purpose is And these certain nations, America, Britain, the Commonwealth, have shared the fundamental idea of what a human being is and what laws should govern us with Israel, which we also heard about. We've been introduced to the Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology, uh, where they're digging uh, literally into the Bible and they are checking the scientific evidence against the history of the Bible. And you look at the Bible and the Bible is about laws, laws even the name of that movie. It's about Moses and the Exodus from Egypt, but it's called the 10 commandments. It includes the 10 commandments, the giving of the 10 commandments law. The Bible has all sorts of connotations in, in our minds. People think of the star actor in the 10 commandments. They think about priests and certain hats performing certain rituals. They think about movies they've seen on Sunday, preachers blasting fire and brimstone condemnations from the pulpit and quoting the Bible at the same time while they shame and manipulate and condemn. And then there's always like some secret sin that they've got in the background that that they're hiding. They're always hypocrites. It's like Hollywood production companies have it in every contract. You've got to portray the Bible like this or this, but definitely not that. But anyway, the Bible is way more than these connotations, these preconceived ideas, these caricatures of people who believe in the Bible. The Bible is way more than that. It has to be. It's unlike any other document on the face of the earth. And that's not just a religious thing to say. It just is. There is no document. There is no book like this book. And it's about law. Law. Now, when we think about law we also have there are it also has connotations oh i don't think i like the law or i'm looking around and things are getting worse and worse uh maybe i do like the law but i want to decide what the law is or or i want uh an exception <laughs> to the law in my case we i mean that's human nature we all think that way so we can sometimes think of law as something oppressive or negative or impossible or terrible or unjust and in many nations it is and <laughs> uh In any human government, uh, the law is going to be oppressive, negative, impossible, terrible, or unjust to the degree that it's different from what a human being really is. If, If the laws do not match what a human being is and should be, then it is a bad law. And we have plenty of those, of course, throughout human history. But the law in the Bible, in this unique book, that law claims to be the actual way that things actually are. The actual instruction book for the way human beings were created to live and survive and thrive. So that law is cause and effect. That law is reality and it's out there somewhere each each of us has to prove for ourselves whether that the laws in the bible are that law but there's definitely law there's definitely cause and effect there's definitely physics there's definitely mathematics there's definitely biology and so many of us spend so many of our lives and have spent so many of our lives throughout the generations just to learn parts of those laws of cause and effect of what causes this behavior in the human body, what causes this metal to react with that metal. We know all about law. We believe in law all day long. We believe in cause and effect. Well, there's definitely cause and effect in human minds and in human behavior. How could there not be? There are a million different ideas about What those causes and effects are but there's definitely cause and effect there's definitely a law there's definitely reality and reality is going to be what it is whether i want it to be that way or or not or whether i know it or not the law is information informing me of what reality is Uh, two plus two is going to equal what it equals and that's a good thing that's that keeps reality stitched together so if two plus two is going to equal what it equals, it's so much better to know what that reality is. It's so much better to act according to that reality when doing something with biology, when programming a satellite, when uh, doing whatever it is we do according to physical laws. There's also laws of human behavior and it seems like they're a lot harder to learn, but they're there. And so living a life according to law, according to the, what, what the founders called the natural law, reality, striving to get at that reality, striving to understand that reality is the only way to live. It's the only way to go. It's the only way to hope to have a decent justice system. And maybe, just maybe, you can find that law and the world's most unique book. So if you've been thinking about law this week, as we've talked about the courts and arraignments and so forth. I would really encourage you to look at the slash literature and look for a booklet we don't mention too often. No freedom without law. No freedom without law. And it'll help you, uh, as it helped me, understand law very differently than than just this system of arbitrary rules that can be used or not used, ignored or or not ignored. No Freedom Without Law. Look for that booklet on thetrumpet.com slash literature. Well, thank you for spending some time with us this first week of April, 2023. We'd like to thank our production assistants, Nick Irwin, Parker Campbell, and Jesse Hester. Please do visit us on thetrumpet.com Email us your thoughts at letters at thetrumpet.com. And thank you again for joining us on Trumpet Hour.